we've been trekking with the account now of of Jacob his wrestling with God and how God called him to be Israel no longer Jacob the man who was mischievous and stealing from his brother from his father but now Jacob a man governed by God Israel is his name. God called him. And we've been studying it as he journeyed from that place where he wrestled with God, where God touched his side and left him with the sock out of his hip, wounded. And how God used this in his life as a reminder of the brokenness that God wants us to be at where we're dependent upon him, not upon ourself of our own works, but of what God can do through us. Where we left off was actually right towards the end of Genesis chapter 35. We didn't finish uh, the chapter last week. As Jacob was journeying now to go back home as God called him, he had already squashed it, so to say, with his brother Esau, been reunited with him after being fearful that Esau might seek to kill him. Esau had found forgiveness in his heart for Jacob, even though Jacob had stolen the birthright. But now Israel is going out to return home. He had to get rid of some of the idols that they had picked up along the way, if you recall. And now as he's journeying back there to home, some craziness takes place. If you remember, Rachel was pregnant at this time. And this is where Genesis chapter 35 picks up with verse 16. It says, Then they journeyed from Bethel. And when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now, Ephrath, it's only 12 miles from Bethel. This is the place where Jacob worshiped the Lord. And as they were on this journey, only 12 miles, suddenly Rachel begins to go into to labor. And it says that she had hard labor. I'm reminded of the curse that was placed upon humanity, upon women, because of Eve's sin, that God said, going forward, you are now going to have pain and childbearing. And this is the result of it. It says in verse 17, Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear. You will have this son also. You see this midwife, she's there to comfort Rachel as she is now under pain, under stress. And she's giving her hope that this pain would soon be over, that there was going to be a safe delivery, that Rachel was going to do well, and that her son also would be born, that her son would survive. If you remember, the last son that she had, Joseph, His name literally means, the Lord shall add to me another son. And here is that second son. Remember, Rachel was having a hard time even conceiving. But now God has blessed her womb. And she is finally giving birth now to a second child. It says in verse 18, And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Onai, but his father called him Benjamin. Now, this is tragic. It's heartbreaking. I'm sure in these times, it was much more dangerous to have children than it is now, as 
they were having this child, she passed away. And they didn't have all the, the technology that we do nowadays. So having children was, was much more dangerous. And she calls his name Ben-Onai, meaning the son of my sorrow or the son of my, my mourning. And what's interesting is that she longed so much for a child. You remember she even had her, her maids marry her husband, Jacob, and have children through her maids, his concubines, because she wanted this child so much. And now that she's finally having the second son, it's kind of sad that she's now dying, giving birth to one. There is an irony in it, a tragedy. So as she's having this son, she calls him Ben-Onai, meaning son of my grief, my sorrow. But Israel steps in, his father, and says, no, we're not going to call him son of sorrow, but we're going to call him Benjamin, meaning the son of my right hand. Whenever you see names with the word Ben before it, like Benjamin, Ben literally means son of. So he's saying son of, and then Jamin, son of my right hand. Now in verse 19, so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Now notice here, Jacob is experiencing the loss of his wife. Jacob, Israel, is not exempt from trials, from heartache. And so he set this monument up for Rachel that said in their time that that pillar was there to this day. Now keep in mind, the author is writing this in his time. Who is the author, if you remember? I'll give you a moment. The author of this is Moses. And Moses is saying in his time, look, that pillar is there till this day. And there are those who would claim that that pillar is still there uh, near Turkey, but that uh, by no means is probably the original monument. There's still a structure there, uh, which is in modern Turkey. And an interesting thing that some of the women do because of this, this story is they'll pick up the stones that are there, uh, these, these black stones, and they're supposedly to help women uh, as they're giving birth, uh, it's kind of a superstition that they believe in, all coming from this account. It's quite interesting what history does in relation to the Bible. So he sets up this monument for the passing of his wife. And then in verse 21, Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. Now, on verse 21, this is the first time that Moses simply calls him Israel. In other times, God was saying, your name shall be Israel. But now the author here is saying, this is Israel, the man who is governed by God, no longer Jacob. And then verse 22, and it happened when Israel dwelt in the, that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Now Bilhah was the maid whom Rachel had gave to Israel to have more sons. And now Israel's oldest son, Reuben, is sleeping with her. This is one of the most dysfunctional families you're ever going to read about in the Bible. This by no means is a model of what's allowed or something that we should aspire to in these accounts. 
It shows me that the Bible is full of real people with real problems. Later on, Reuben, because of this action, would be cursed by his father before his father's passing. And not only now does he have to suffer with the loss of his wife, Rachel, but now he has to suffer with one of his wives being defiled by his own son. See, the the lust and the immorality, it's there in the family of God. And this is something that we need to, in our own lives, fight against. Something that we need to turn to God and ask him for help when the flesh tries to rise up in our lives. The Bible teaches us, submit to God, resist the devil, and the devil will flee. Now in verse 23, finishing up 22. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservants, were Dan and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservants, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob, who were born to him in Paddan Aram. So we have these 12 tribes right here, the 12 sons who would become these 12 tribes, which we will read so much about in the Old Testament. And we see the family line, the family tree of God's chosen people, it grows. All these sons born to Israel from these four wives. Now look at verse 27. Then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And we think we're old sometimes. Imagine having to live 180 years. So he lived 40 years after he made his will, this is Isaac, and blessed his two sons, Jacob and Esau. Now Jacob, keep in mind, is 120 years of age. He was born when his father was 60 years old. And at this point, Joseph is now 29 years of age. So you can kind of see the, the scope of how old these men were at this point in time. Now in verse 29, so Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob, they buried him. What I see here is, as Isaac passes away, breathes his last, I'm reminded that he followed in the footsteps of his father in faith. You see, he looked forward to the promise that God had given his father Abraham. We read about this promise that was given to the gods of Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. In Hebrews 11, you don't need to turn there, but verses 13 through 15 say this. All these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is beautiful because it reminds me that though we live in this world that at times can be full of stress and trials and heartache and grief, this is not our home. 
we look forward to a, a place without sorrow, without pain, without suffering, where the beauty of God is going to be so powerful that our human bodies wouldn't be able to handle his beauty. So much so that he has to give us a new body so that there in heaven, what is so amazing and beautiful to behold will live with us forever and ever. That's Jesus. And I apply that truth to my life now, knowing that Jesus is alive today, that he lives, his Holy Spirit lives within us, fulfilling those needs And sometimes we get disconnected from him. Sometimes we break that fellowship, that that relationship. Sin gets in the way. Activities get in the way. But we are to be constantly in fellowship with Christ. Looking unto him for the plans he has for us. Now we don't look at heaven as this time of like, oh, I we just want to escape from what God has for us here on this earth because God has called us to live on this earth as sojourners, people who are pilgrims. And he's called us to do specific tasks to fulfill the needs that he has given us, the adventure, the calling. And that call is irrevocable. It can't be taken away from us. And I'm reminded as I see this family of Abraham, of Jacob and Isaac, that they were looking towards God, that heavenly realm. And still, tracking on the earth, full of faith. May we be full of faith in our life. Now, as we get into chapter 36, you'll notice that there are many names listed here. It goes through the line of Esau, the chiefs of Edom, the kings of Edom, and the kings of Esau. So we're going to study each name right now in its Hebrew meaning. I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. We're actually going to skip chapter 36 for tonight. And you're thinking, what? Skip the chapter. Uh, Feel free on your devotional time to go through chapter 36. When you read through the Bible on your own, go through chapter 36 and see what God will show you. But as a Bible study, uh, we are not going to go in depth on chapter 36 as this is a survey of the Old Testament of the book of Genesis. So let's go now to chapter 37. Skip to level 37. We're almost done with the book of Genesis and how much God has taught us so far. This now account takes a shift from Jacob to now begin to focus on his son, Joseph. And we're going to now embark on this account of Joseph and the trials that God used in his life how God would use him as a young man and give him vision and dreams of greatness. And then God would call him to go through some of the greatest suffering, some of the greatest and tragic persecutions, but all so that God can have his good will be completed in the end. The evil things that people meant for Joseph, God would use for good. And one of the key phrases throughout Joseph's life that we see is that God was with him. Everywhere he goes, God was with him and God was with him. The Bible reminds us. And it's a reminder to us that God is with us, that he's sovereign over us. So let's begin with chapter 37, verse 1. It says, Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph 
being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph bought, brought a bad report of them to his father. So we have here one of the younger sons of this 12 tribes. He's favored. He was favored because he was one of the sons of the wife who was loved the most by Israel, by Jacob. Now this is a mistake for this parent to do. We'll see how his favoritism towards Joseph actually leads to much anguish in Joseph's life. You see, Joseph was being a tattletale here, and he bought a bad report of them as his brothers sometimes would mess around instead of doing what their father had told them to do. He would go and tell his dad of the bad things that they were doing. And if you've ever had a younger sibling or someone doing that to you, you would understand this kind of animosity that they had towards this favorite child. Me being the youngest of my family, I can relate more to Joseph than the older brothers. But look at verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also he made him a tunic of many colors. Now in verse 3, the, this tunic of many colors and something we hear much about. There was a, a cartoon made of it and many movies made about this man and his coat of many colors. In most translations, the coat of many colors is more accurately translated this coat with long sleeves. And colors couldn't be described as this coat also. But this coat with long sleeves would be a, a sign of, of of wealth, something that was really fancy. And his brothers all saw how his dad favored him. And then on, on top of this favorment, he got this long coat. In verse 4, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So we have now the evil of both sides, the evil of favoritism and the evil of hatred from his brothers. Remember what Jesus said, that if you had hatred in your heart for your brother, it was as if you had murdered him already. And you can't say with your mouth that you love your brother and hate him in your heart. It says now in verse 5, Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream, which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So this sheaf, this agricultural plant, Joseph in his dream has sees it. And all of his brother's sheaves bow down to his sheaf. And this they saw as a sign of uh, them bowing down, of submitting to him. And they said, who is this kid? He's the favorite kid. And now he's having these dreams that we're all going to bow down to him or what? What are you trying to say, Joseph? And so this hatred grew within their heart. Shall you reign over us? 
And then in verse 9, Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bow down to me. So he told it to his fathers and his brother. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I, your brothers indeed, come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So a few things we see. One, that God is speaking to Joseph through dreams. Now, when it comes to dreams, we need to be careful with dreams. Sometimes people have dreamt dreams that are the cause of spicy burritos late at night. Uh, Other times, God does use dreams in our life to guide us. Sometimes the psyche is overwhelming and God uses that to, to point things out to us. I've had dreams in my life, even interpreted at times. Dreams that were warnings. And sometimes even they can be prophetic. But we need to take everything in account and measured by the word of God. If you're having a dream that's telling you to get into a relationship with a non-believer, that dream is the flesh rising up its sin just rising up in your own selfish nature at work. But we need to take everything according to Scripture, to the Word of God. So as we see Joseph having these dreams, there's something else to note. Now in his second dream that he has, he sees the sun and the moon and these 11 stars, which would be his brother's, The sun would be his father, and the moon his mother. It is quite interesting in the book of Revelation that you do see these same symbols and certain aspects of the visions that John saw. And it's quite a neat study when you look back at this chapter and look forward towards what God was showing John. There's a, a, quite a unique thing when it comes to uh, the Bible and symbolism. Many times, usually the rule, we have to look at context. But when you see something that is a symbol, let's say, for example, in the Bible, it talks about birds. Jesus would use birds in a parable as something that is evil, the bird that comes and takes away the seed, which is supposed to be the the gospel of faith to a believer in the the parable of of the soils. And that bird is like the enemy, the devil. And then after that, throughout scripture, according to what's called hermeneutics, those birds are always symbolic of evil. And this is, doctrine. So when you start to see these certain symbols come up, unless in the context Jesus is saying literally what a bird is, but if he's speaking allegorically, then you can be assured of what that meaning is. So look at context, context, context when you are studying the Word of God. So he has this second dream, and his brothers envied him. But then in verse 11, it says, But his father kept the matter in mind. So even his father was saying, What, what, what are these dreams you're having? But I do like how his father still kept it in mind. And that's something that we should do when these dreams and visions come up. Really pray and seek God's will on them. And sometimes keep them in mind. So we're not caught off guard when God opens that door. Now in verse 12, 
Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, Here I am. Then he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks, and bring back word to me. So he sent him out to the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. So now Joseph, in obedience, goes and does the will of his father. But notice here, his brothers are working. Shechem's kicking back at home. You still see that favoritism. Now in verse 15, Now a certain man found him, and there he was, wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? So he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding the flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here. For I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now remember, his father told them that they're going to be in Shechem, and his brother goes there, can't find them. So it doesn't quite say what they were doing there in Dothan, but I can imagine that they were possibly slacking off, possibly having fun and doing what they wanted to do instead of the work that their father had told them to do. Because next, what we see is the response of when they see their younger brother coming to him, to them. In verse 18, Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. So now we see their sin, what was in their heart, giving birth to action. See, that's how sin starts. First, they envied him in their heart. It begins in the mind, in the heart, with what they saw. And then our sin, when it enters our eyes, goes into our mind, into our heart, it it grows. And when we let that sin fester in there, it gives birth to action. So now they are sinning with their hands. There's something interesting that in Judaism that the priesthood would do. You see, they, they held their, their body, the temple of God, to a high standard to be holy. And as they would perform their sacrifices unto the Lord, they would dip their, the blood of the lamb on their toe, on their forehead, on their hands. And the reason why they would do this, it was symbolic that God had had this sacrifice, this atonement in their life and that wherever their feet would go, it was bought by the blood. Whatever their minds would think, that was redeemed by the blood. And whatever their hands would act in. It was to be sanctified of the Lord. And may we also live in that that manner. What we think, where we go, what we do with our hands, may it be honoring to God. A lot of times you'll hear a young Christian who's maturing in the Lord ask, hey, is it okay? Do you think it's right that I do such and such? of an activity. And many times my response will be back to that is, well, does it bring glory to God? Because if God is glorified in, in that action, then sure, feel free, have your Christian liberty. But if God is not glorified, perhaps there's a, a higher route, more expedient way to live this life 
And if you have to ask me about it, maybe that's God putting a conviction in your heart. Something we need to heed. So now the actions of the brothers are taking full form. Were they coming up with this plan now? They're saying, look, we're going to get him and we're going to throw him into a pit. And then we're just going to tell our father that he was killed. Some wild beast devoured him. And then look at verse 21. It says, but Reuben heard it and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. You see, Reuben here was convicted. He knew this was wrong, what they were doing to their younger brother. And so he found some means of escape for his younger brother and said, hey, let's, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him into this pit. But don't kill him. You see, he's trying to save his brother's life here. And then in verse 23, so it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. You see, they now fully are taking revenge on their younger brother for the favoritism that their father had shown him. The very thing that he was spoiled by, this tunic of many colors, was ripped off of him, and he was cast into this pit. This is just the beginning of the trials that Joseph would have to endure of the suffering where at this point in time, Joseph, I'm sure, was calling out to God. It says now in verse 26, So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. It is quite interesting that the Ishmaelites are now journeying with these goods. Because if you remember, Ishmael was also one of the sons of Abraham. And they had grown now. This great nation with, with much abundance is traveling to go to Egypt. It says in verse 28, Then Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Now, there is something quite beautiful about Joseph's life. Joseph is going to be a symbol a symbol of, of sacrifice, a symbol of God's plan, of God's sovereignty. You see, in this same manner that Joseph is sold to Egypt, a symbol of, of the world of evil, for 20 shekels of silver, Joseph would later on become the savior of these people. There's going to be a famine that's going to come in. So much so that everyone's going to be needing to go to Egypt to get food. And it's because of Joseph's life and the wisdom that God gives him that he saves not only his own family, but the entire Egypt from this famine. 
Now, just as Jesus was sold for 30 shekels of silver, Joseph is also sold. And what the enemy had meant for evil, God uses it for good. So Joseph, at the end, when he's revealed to his brothers as his brother, they didn't know it was him. I'm jumping ahead. Spoiler alert. We're going to see that same thing happen to the children of Israel when Jesus is revealed to them as their savior. God is not done with Israel. He has a plan for them. So much so that when they see the scars on their Messiah, they're going to say, who put these scars in you? And he said, this is done in the house of my friends. And that's what the love of Christ is in our life. For Jesus loved us so much that he allowed for evil to happen, to take place, even upon himself, that we might be in fellowship with him. It says in verse 29, Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes And he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. So now as Reuben was attempting to save his brother, his brothers sold him to these Midianite traders for profit. And Reuben, he's realizing as the oldest son who's supposed to be responsible for the lives of his brothers, that he's failed. So they continue now with their lie towards their father. They take the tunic of many colors and they kill one of the goats and they dip it in the blood. It says in verse 32, then they sent the tunic of many colors And they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. For he said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. So we see now this lie that his brothers had given to their father, that some wild beast had killed Joseph his favorite son. And now is their their father's mourning. I can't help but also think, I don't want to get too allegorical, but I can't help but think of what those disciples were feeling like when Jesus, their Messiah, was killed. When they thought all hope was, was gone, when they felt that the man, the God man who had come to rescue them from Rome was now missing, killed by the Jews, by the Romans. And what they didn't see was that God had a plan this whole time, that the Christ was meant to suffer so that we can have our sins forgiven. See, God is not slack concerning his promise but is patient, long-suffering so that we can be brought to repentance. This is what the word of God teaches. God does not desire for us to be cast into hell, but he loves us and he has a plan for us. And this gives us hope, knowing that God is taking care of those ginormous cosmic issues of our life, our salvation, our our soul's destiny. If he can take care of the big things, why don't we trust him with the little things? 
God is sovereign over all those tiny details. And he wants us to realize that he is with us. At the end in verse 36, it says, Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guard. And so we're about to enter now into the next account of, of Joseph's life as he becomes now a servant to the man known as Potiphar, this captain of the guard. And we see now as Joseph is entering into a season of his life where things are not sure, where there's much trial, God is with him. And God is with you and me. So as you continue this week, perhaps you're going through a season of where you feel like you're thrown in the pit, where you feel as though you're in Joseph's jail, a servant in Potiphar's house. Know that God is with you in this season and that if it wasn't for God's sovereignty divinely preparing you for this season, then we wouldn't be prepared for the next season. See, every season in our life is preparation for the next. Sometimes we get caught up on thinking of the future so much so that we're just looking at that next season of, well, that's the glory season. But God wants us to learn something in the season that you're in, not to try to escape it, but to go through it with God. Sometimes God just moves the mountain out of our way for us. And that's awesome. It's glorious when, as we're walking towards that mountain, God just removes it and we walk through. But there's other times when it's almost as if Jesus comes alongside us with a backpack on. He's like, are you ready to go over the mountain? We're like, what? Go over it. He's like, don't worry, I'm with you. And he takes us through it. May you be filled with the Holy Spirit this week as you go forward, as you realize God is with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace and mercy. Father, we thank you for the teaching of your word, Lord, that it it leads our life in truth, that we might bear fruit for you. I pray for those who are going through a trial right now, who are experiencing, Lord God, family drama, who are experiencing betrayal. Father, may you remind them that you're with them. I pray, Father, for your Holy Spirit to divinely intervene in those situations. And Lord God, may your goodness be seen in the land of the living. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We thank you. Forgive us of our sins. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If uh, you desire to get right with the Lord, please feel free to message us. And we want to pray with you. We want to spend time in fellowship with you. But know that God wants us for himself. That he's calling to you to be in a loving relationship with him. And be filled with his spirit this week. Use the name of Jesus in conversation with your friends, your family members. Bring him up. Sound, I hear it in the thunder.
skies Like cannons in the night The music of the universe plays We're singing you are holy Great and mighty The moon and the stars Declare who you are I'm so unworthy but still you love me forever my heart will sing of how great you are power is yours amen all glory honor power is yours amen all glory honor power is yours forever amen we're singing I'm so unworthy, but still you love me forever. My heart will sing of how great you are. Sunday morning at 11.30.